morning. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the eighth program in our series this election year, broadcast as, at this time on the second Monday of each month. We're featuring topics in participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our topic today is educating voters, educating citizens. We'll discuss the difference between educated citizens and well-informed voters and the role of public education in cultivating civic engagement. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'm your host today for the Democracy Forum. And let me introduce our guests. I just wrote a paragraph about the League of Women Voters the other day. Oh, good. Well, paper that I'm that. Jennifer, is that you? You're on the air. Yeah. Um, this is in, the, in the context I'm... Jennifer, I'm going to introduce you now. Here we go. Okay. Joining us today is Professor Jennifer Hochschild. Jennifer is the Henry Labar Jane Professor of Government at Harvard University. She studies and teaches about the intersection of American politics and political philosophy, particularly in the areas of race, ethnicity, and immigration, as well as educational and social welfare policies. She also works on issues in public opinion, public political culture, and American political thought. Professor Hochschild is the author of numerous books, including most recently, Creating a New Racial Order, How Immigration, Multiracialism, Genomics, and the Young Can Remake Race in America, that was co-authored with Vesla Weaver and Tracy Birch. So welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Glad to be here. And also joining us by phone is Elizabeth McNamara. Elizabeth is the 18th president of the League of Women Voters of the United States and chair of the League of Women Voters Education Fund. Ms. McNamara joined the League in 1983 and has since served in leadership roles at all levels of the League, local, state, and national. She's an attorney who recently retired as deputy chief assistant district attorney in DeKalb County, Georgia, where she was in charge of the office's Juvenile Justice Division. Welcome, Elizabeth. Good to be here with, good to be here with you, Anne. So here we go again. Another election season is upon us, and um, we are about to be flooded with a deluge of campaign advertising designed to influence our vote or our motivation to cast a ballot. Some of that advertising will be inflammatory, some misleading, some of it will be downright wrong. Uh, we wonder if Americans are equipped to sort the wheat from the chaff. Are they inclined to prepare themselves to carry out their civic duty? And does it matter for democracy? Jennifer, let's put the question to you first. What is the responsibility of citizens in, democ in, in democracy to inform themselves about the candidates and the important public policy issues? What is the responsibility of the state to inform citizens? And what is the responsibility of the candidates? What, to what extent do you think each is fulfilling its responsibility? That's a hard question to start with. Um, <laughs> well, I would say uh, all three of them have a great deal of responsibility, um, maybe equal amounts at a very high level. This is to start with simply. And all three of them aren't doing a terribly good job of that. Um, now, again, that, both of those sentences are much too simple and will need development over the course of the next hour. I guess I would start with the point that Thomas Jefferson made, Benjamin Franklin, Horace Mann, uh, 
George Washington, every single framer of the American Constitution and equivalent people in you know England or France or wherever, saying that if, in fact, you're going to try to have a democracy or a republic, and it's not going to be a totally chaotic mess, which is what they expected some of the time, you've got to have a well-educated citizenry uh, because they have to know how to choose leaders who will act in the public interest or at least be decent, just, moral people. And absent an educated citizenry, you can't expect to have an educated governance system. So Jefferson and various other people's promoted, if not a free public education system looking exactly like what we now have, something that was a pretty close predecessor. So, so the basic premise of democratic theory is that you've got to have a well-educated and attentive citizenry because that's the only thing that's going to ensure that we have a responsible and responsive and appropriate governance system. Now, we know that most citizens, most of the time, don't live up to anything close to that ideal, and probably including all of us in this phone call, or at least many of us in the world. People have many, many other things that they really care about in their lives, and politics emerges briefly and periodically and confusingly. So the citizens do have a responsibility, but I would say that the state and the candidates have as great a responsibility to recognize reality, that people simply aren't going to inform themselves in a way that one would like them to, and the democratic theory says they should. So you've got to have some help from the state and from the candidates. I could say more, but maybe I should stop and... But Elizabeth, what do you think, Elizabeth? Are we, each of us, doing our job here? Well, you know, the league was the league has been around for a long time and one of the reasons that the league was founded after women finally got the right to vote in 1920 was to engage in adult political education. Um and that adult political education had largely been left to the parties uh previously and the parties are the parties they have, you know, they have their own they have their own interests. Uh, just as they do now, and to a certain extent, I take a little comfort in the fact that it has always been this way in in our democracy, uh, that as long as we have a partisan system, and we have since the very beginning, that the parties are going to present the issues in the way that is going to be best for them. Uh, so as the president of an organization that was founded 90, over 90 years ago uh, on the noble experiment of doing adult political education without a particular partisan point of view. In other words, the League does not support or oppose candidates. i got to say that um, that while citizens are, are not doing as good a job, perhaps, as even they would like to do, all of us would like to be better informed on every single thing that, is, that appears on a ballot in front of us. Uh, I know I'm not. I know there are races, because we elect everybody where I come from, um, that there are races where I just simply cannot, I don't have time to keep up with the issues. Uh, and so, you know, you've got to depend to a certain extent on the parties. You've got to be a critical thinker at this time of, at this time of year. As you're seeing all of those ads, um, voters need to be asking themselves, does this make sense? Uh, and you need to be fine, and you need to take at least some time, some little amount of time to find, to find some facts. Unfortunately, there are organizations out there and there are resources out there that, that give citizens an opportunity uh, to get both sides of an issue. The League, obviously, is one important source. I've, I noticed on the, the League of Women Voters of Maine, for example, has got a wonderful voter guide 
uh, on the on the ballot issues, on the referendum issues that are going to appear on on the ballot. And those that's a great resource to go to for some things that frequently you get down to the bottom of the ballot and you're looking at all of those issues and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize they were going to these were going to be here. So I mean, we do the best we can. Well, um, and it's interesting because I I know I mean you're. Um a politically engaged person, Elizabeth, and probably we on this phone call all are, but it's a heck of a lot of work to really um, understand some of these public policy issues. And I know people who are very well-educated, well-informed, well-intentioned, um, who just say they don't have time. And the, the, Go ahead. I'm sorry. There are some things that political scientists say help to deal with that problem. I mean, in addition to the League of Women Voters and other organizations that are genuinely trying to educate people, there are some shortcuts that citizens take, and which a lot of scholars think are actually pretty effective. So we don't all have to learn every ballot issue in order to be plausibly responsible citizens. So some of those shortcuts, clearly, as, as Elizabeth just said, the adversarial system of the parties is one sort of way of testing what you think is the case, which is you listen, at least in principle, to both parties and decide which one you think is most persuasive, because it's their job to try to persuade you that they're right and the other guy's wrong. Um, it turns out that the literature shows that people actually know a reasonable about, again, this is maybe just underlying what Elizabeth already implied, people are pretty good on issues that they care a lot about. So union members are pretty good on labor legislation. African-Americans are pretty good on understanding racial dynamics in a candidate or in an election. Um, you know, people between ages 18 and 30 are pretty good at understanding educational issues and so on. So, so any one of those groups may not know much about anything else. But if you have a very big and complicated political system, like James Madison set up for us, 200 whatever years ago, you get a, a relatively small group of people who are quite competent on a relatively small number of issues, but moving across the whole political system, you, you get a lot of people knowing about a lot of issues. Um, heuristics, which is a fancy term for basically elephants and donkeys, um, it turns out that many people can make reasonably good guesses about what would be in their interest if they really knew the facts by figuring out whether the candidate or the issue that they're voting for, you know, goes on the side of the donkeys or goes on the side of the elephants, um, which makes nonpartisan elections actually much less informative in certain ways. It, it appears, I mean, the progressives used to think that nonpartisan elections would give us more attention to the facts and less attention to the spin that parties put on things. Probably it's the case that people learn more or make better judgments about their own interests by small-scale heuristics, again, sort of elephants and donkeys kinds of thing, than by actually being expected to know a lot. Um, and the final thing i say very quickly is that sort of what, what, again, the, the jargony phrase is local opinion leaders. So, you know, you talk to your spouse, you talk to your kids, you talk to your barber or hairdresser, you talk to your teacher, you talk to the guy you stand beside at work, you talk to the bus driver. There are people in most people's social circumstances 
who know something. They at least know more than I do. And sort of local opinion leadership turns out to be pretty important and probably pretty effective in communicating information. So netting all those things together, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, Jennifer, do you think that um, that voters are getting what they want out of elections? I mean, by and large, do you think we're electing people who represent what we really want? Well, I think that given the choices we're offered, we're probably getting the best of what we're being offered. Mm -hmm. I, I mean that. As a, that's a fairly <laughs> careful statement, as, yeah, as I yeah. hope you hear. Yeah. Um, that on balance, again, the research literature generally shows, there are clear exceptions to this, but generally shows that if you teach people a whole lot, they, their votes turn out to look pretty similar to what they would have been, or what they were, in fact, under these sort of small-scale heuristics and kind of cheating devices that I was just describing. Mm -hmm. um, now, do we have a broad enough array of choices? Are people learning or being taught or being told that, you know, we really might think about these issues in a quite different way and come to quite different decisions? Are people being helped to think about their own interests differently? No. I think we do actually a very poor job of that in this country. Because I was going to say, I've seen research that indicates that people's deeply had held values and beliefs are re really impervious to the facts. That, um, and it was um, an interview I just heard the other week where they were talking about the welfare to work example and how Obama had unraveled the welfare to work provision in the Clinton welfare reform. And people, when told um, that it was not true that Obama had un unraveled that, um, completely disbelieved the fact and right. um, thought that the person conveying the message had lost credibility because, you know, what they had been told lined up with their beliefs and beliefs were stronger than evidence, um, which is kind of disturbing in a way. Yeah, now, there, is a, there is absolutely a lot of research. And again, the sort of the jargony phrase is motivated reasoning. Um, and, you know, it's actually, it is a piece of jargon, but it's actually a helpful piece in a certain way. You're, you're motivated by your values or your partisanship to reason in a particular direction. Um, so, there, I mean, that's actually, there's a lot of dispute, again, among political scientists about how, th th that's clearly the case. I mean, what you described, you know, there are lots of examples of it. That, you know, we've all probably had that kind of conversation with our, of course, we individually don't act like that, but we all know people who do, right? Um, yeah, right. So, so sh sure, you know, and, and those of us on the left read certain newspapers and watch certain television shows, and those of us on the right read other newspapers and watch other television shows, and so we're reinforced by the, quote, factual information that we're being given by the people we already agree with. And, you know, so there's a very strong tendency in that direction. Let me remind our listeners that we're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is educating voters, educating citizens. Our guests this morning are Professor Jennifer Hochschild, the Henry Labar Jane Professor of Government at Harvard University, and Elizabeth McNamara, the 18th President of the League of Women Voters of the United States and Chair of the League of Women Voters of Maine Education Fund. Elizabeth, let me um, ask you, what do you think is the role of public education in this 
whole realm of voter knowledge and awareness of issues and um, and and preparedness to vote. What are the goals of universal public education? Is it to educate citizens or to educate workers or to do both? Um, and what role does public education play in equipping citizens with the critical thinking skills to sort out the kind of fact-checking that we just talked about a little bit? Well, you know, I think that civics, that one of the things that we have been missing for a very, very long time now um, in public education has been a real commitment to civics, to civics education. Um, civics education has always played an enormous role in passing from one generation to the next generation the merit, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, at least of, of some understanding of the American system of government. I do think that that helps a good deal in understanding um, or knowing what questions to ask, understanding uh, what roles the various the various folks play that you're that you're voting for on an election day, and. Um, which I think is the bad news, is that we have not been doing a terribly good job uh, with civics education. It has not been, there has not been a huge focus on that for a variety of reasons and for quite some period of time from what, you know, from what I've been able to see. The good news, of course, is that our public schools are probably um, one of the more democratic institutions that, that, we, that we have. Um, they're very, they're community-based. They are at, in, their, in their best Sense, they involve uh, every constituency that is interested in the public schools. And so there's a real opportunity, I think, through the public schools, not just to teach children democracy, but to practice democracy. And to, you know, if this is something that is missing, that we've got an opportunity, we do have an opportunity we, that we sometimes don't think about. Sometimes we have a tendency um, to be less attuned to how much we really can do in our local community to improve not just our community, but also imp- improve the future um, for our kids and for, you know, and for the whole country. Just through something as simple as showing up at a PTA meeting or being a, a community leader involved with the with the public schools, whether or not you have children in the public schools, uh, they're really very they can be very very responsive to a community that is interested in getting involved. So I think that the role of public education can be and should be enormous in making sure that we all have certain common values. We, when we go into the when we go into the into the voting booth, because that is the one place in the voting booth on election day is the is the one place in our country where we are truly all of us equal, and it is one of the geniuses of our system that um, over the course of our of our history we have become more and more inclusive in terms of who has a voice on election day, and those are very very important voices in terms of our families and our communities. So I think the public schools have an enormous role to play. But we as citizens also have an opportunity to influence what they're teaching and, um, and, and how we're practicing our democracy. So as the, as the franchise has expanded and we've had the march toward a more and more inclusive democracy, as you say, Elizabeth, has it made it harder or more costly to the public to uh, sustain a highly informed citizenry? In other words, is it more expensive and more of a public well, I guess it probably is more of a public burden to educate the citizenry when there are more of them, not just an educated elite who could be counted on to get a private school education, but now everybody has the right to vote, not just men 
with property, but men without property, women, um, young people, and on and on. Does it make it harder to create, uh, uh, to set a high standard for an educated electorate when it includes everybody? You know, I think... I, I think if we if we take the point of view that that everybody has to be that everybody has to be at some you know high level of of informed, um, I, I think we, we we overlook the fact that what we really want is a high level of of, of engagement, a high level of participation. Um, there are a lot of ways to get involved with the political system, and at a, at a lot of different at a lot of different levels. I just mentioned that the public schools are a wonderful way. Uh, to begin getting involved in an area that's of interest to an awful, to, you know, certainly should be of uh, uh, interest to all parents of school-aged children, uh, but never. The, but there are other ways as well, and a lot of times we we get, do get so busy that we forget how important uh, something Jennifer just mentioned, and that is talking to each other and learning from each other, developing points of view outside of our own by just listening to the story, to personal stories and personal information from people that may not be. Um, that may not be just exactly like us. And the beauty of a diverse society is that there are lots and lots of opportunities to do that. We just need to remember uh, to perhaps ask a few more questions or take the time to ask somebody else's point of view. Perhaps, in, you know, during election season, don't just, um, not just read the newspaper, but, uh, you know, attend a, a candidate forum, attend a debate in your community. Uh, go, we forget, too, that between elections, those those people we elect are are in fact public servants. They are available to us at times other than in the voting booth or on election day. And uh, I think sometimes we don't take the time just to pay attention to what our elected officials are doing. And there are plenty of resources now, um, not just in-person resources, but online resources, social media resources that are available to people so that we can interact and learn more from each other. Uh, our stories are the stories that drive our policy. What happens to us individually a lot of times is what defines the impact of some of the policies that are made uh, in, in our city halls or in our state houses or in, uh, you know, on, on Capitol Hill. How that impacts people individually is a lot of times how we learn and how we realize that something is either is either is working or is not working. So uh, I think we put a lot of emphasis on formal stuff when it, a lot of times it's really knowing how stuff is working in your community, what's, what's going on with those people, those, those thought leaders or those community folks that you have re ready access to. Jennifer, what do you say about the role of public education in a, an inclusive and um in an inclusive democracy with universal franchise? How yeah, it's a great question. I've actually written, uh, I've written two books on education, politics, and policy, one of which is called The Public Schools and the American Dream. So you can kind of figure out from that title where I come down on how important they are. Um, but I've also written an article on exactly the question you asked, which is if we need, want to have and believe we should a well-educated, well-informed, highly participatory political system which probably all of us believe, why do we think it's more democratic to keep increasing the number of voters who are almost by definition less well-informed, less well-educated, less participatory because they haven't been included? So I think it's actually a really interesting paradox. Um, part of the answer for me is that inclusiveness, and, and again, I'm, I think I'm just agreeing with Elizabeth here, is in some sense the underlying core value. People have a right to 
be represented, to be full citizens, to vote, to be full members of the political system, frankly, regardless of whether they know anything, things, whatever. So, so that, that's kind of my starting premise, and mm, I think that's probably not a terribly controversial one, and maybe... Uh, but the other thing I would say is that in addition to the kinds of things that Elizabeth is talking about, inclusiveness can itself generate more knowledge and maybe and more participation. That if you have, if you have a, a political system in which, say, only a relatively small number of property-owning white men can vote, which is what we started with and which was, in fact, at that point, the most democratic political system in the world, they talk to each other, but a lot of people aren't are completely left out. If you contrast that with a political system in which, in effect, their wives and daughters and sisters and mothers can vote, and the guys who don't own any property, and heaven forfend the black you know, men and women who used to be enslaved and who are now actually, honest to goodness, citizens, and I would want to add immigrants who have naturalized uh, to become American citizens. So. There's a kind of a critical mass possibility through the public school system, through the kinds of forums that Elizabeth is talking about, through maybe social media, through maybe just discussion in the workplace. In some sense, the more people who are included, the more possible, I don't want to be too Pollyannish here, mm -hmm. the more possible it is that people will in fact become better educated to some degree educate each other, take those civics classes, which in my high school were deadly dull and nobody took seriously, take them more seriously because it actually matters if you understand what government does and how to, how to affect it and so on. So it, the, the, the fantasy, I hope it's more than just a fantasy, is that inclusiveness will itself increase education, engagement, knowledge, capacity to understand your interests, capacity to judge whether politicians are trying to bamboozle you in their own interests or not. Well, I mean, it's been a, a generation now since the last expansion in the franchise when 18-year-olds were granted the right, right to vote. Do you think it's playing out that way, Jennifer? Um, maybe a little bit, if you squint hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, what the proportion of 18 to 24-year-olds who vote has always been lower, than people who are older. But it has, in fact, been steadily rising over the last two or three elections. We heard a lot about it in the 2008 Obama election, but in fact, the proportion of young adults who, were vote, who voted in that election was pretty much on a trend line with what had been changing from 2000 to 2004 to 2008. It maybe was a little bit of blip, and probably more than a little bit of a blip among the non-white population, the African-American and Latino populations. But, but the bigger story is that, on balance, young adults vote a little bit more now than equivalent young adults did 10 or 20 years ago. So there's some evidence of that. Mm -hmm. um, women are, of course, becoming more and more highly educated. There is a higher proportion of young women, maybe all adult women, in college getting uh, you know, higher education degrees than of men at this point. I mean, that's a whole new, a different problem that would be worth worrying about. But again, compared with some point in the past, 
there's no question that women are more educated, more knowledgeable, more participatory, more capable of using the kinds of resources that Elizabeth is talking about and, and creates. So over a long run, we clearly have a much more politically engaged half of the population, the female half of the population. Uh, African-Americans, uh, in part because of Obama, but not uniquely so. I mean, there's been a rise in black elected officials from local to regional to state. Actually, ironically, not very much at the national level, but at more local and state levels. There's been a rise in black elected officials over the last, I mean, certainly since the 1960s, almost by definition, but even in the last 20 years. So on balance, I think you can say that the black population has more at least collective engagement and representation and participation. Uh, immigrants, it's a less clear story, in part because, of course, a large proportion are undocumented and not don't have a pathway to citizenship. Again, that's another whole very separate and important conversation. Um, naturalization rates among people who are, in fact, legal immigrants are pretty flat. They actually haven't changed very much. Um, there's always the hope that when you get a large share of Latinos, especially, living in a community that they will get galvanized in the way that I've been describing. Um, we see pockets of that. Elizabeth may know more about this than I do, but I think the broad evidence is that, that the level of naturalization and then registration and then voting and then participation after elections is, is pretty low and pretty flat. That really hasn't changed much over 20 or 30 years. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Professor Jennifer Hochschild, the Henry Labar Jane Professor of Government at Harvard University, and Elizabeth McNamara, the 18th President of the League of Women Voters of the United States and Chair of the League of Women Voters Education Fund. Our topic today is Educating Voters, Educating Citizens. Elizabeth if we think there's um, an important link between universal public education and universal voting, um, is there, uh, for the conspiracy-minded among us, do you think that there's a conspiracy to sort of dumb down the education system, starve it for resources, specifically for the purpose of raising a, up a class of undereducated voters who can be be persuaded to vote against their own interests? Well, I certainly hope not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure that, you know, when I say that public education is, is an enormous, is a very valuable vehicle to pass along our democratic traditions for any number of reasons, uh, I, I, I say that not so much because, as Jennifer says, the mere fact that we're educating a lot of people, uh, that we have universal public education, that does, there's not a direct correlation. I don't think anybody sees a direct correlation between um, public education and a high level of citizen engagement. I don't think that's probably ever been true. But I do think that, um, the, 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 I think you can see the impact like to shift that question just a little bit, and, and because I do live in a minority-majority county uh, in, in a state that has seen tremendous changes over the last um, 30, or, well, the last 35 years since I've been living here in terms of, you know, what our elected officials look like, um, who are our elected officials at, at the various levels, and what the, but what the issues are that are 
important to the electorate. And I think as you see these folks, these more diverse folks, um, rolling into a meaningful, you know, some form of a meaningful political role, and I'm going to start with women because, honest, you know, honestly, after the Civil War, particularly in my part of the country, there was such a huge, such a huge and organized effort to suppress African Americans and keep them out of the political system that I think we can really kind of start with 1920. But, I mean, looking to see what kind of issues became important, what legislation started moving after, for example, women got the right, got the right to vote. We started seeing uh, we started seeing legislation that was an awful lot more, um, it was a lot more sensitive to issues that were important to women, uh, that important to labor because women and children, and important to women and children. Uh, and the same can be said after, when, after the, during the civil rights movement as you started seeing African Americans be much more politically engaged in a meaningful fashion that you know, our national priorities have shifted. The number of folks that we are concerned about, that we are, um, that, that have a vo- not just have a voice, but are seeing results out of our, out of elected officials and out of our government systems, has absolutely expanded. And so, you know, I just, I, I just think you can't, I, I don't think you can divorce those two things. The more voices that we are hearing from, the, 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 the better the dialogue is, the better the solutions we're finding, the more inclusive those solutions are. And, you know, we just have to keep moving. We just have to keep moving in this direction. Is it always going to be a struggle to make sure that everybody is as informed and engaged as we would like them to be? Absolutely. But that's been true since the very beginning. So what? let's put, let's put it to you another way, Jennifer. If we believe that... Um, Having a functioning democracy demands an investment in public education. Is the corollary also true that starving public education weakens democracy? And yeah, let me let me say a quick comment about your conspiracy theory because yeah, I think it's. Uh, but but also then move to the the question you just asked me directly. Um, I don't think there's any straightforward conspiracy. I think that's in some ways it would almost be easier if there were because then we could identify the bad guys and get rid of them and solve the problem. Um, so I, I think that's, I almost wistfully say, I think that's too simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't really mean that, but sort of. I, I think it's, but there is a genuine, I think there is a starving of public education, at least in certain communities, and that's the critical thing. I mean, I think there's two things going on that explain it. One is, I mean, apart from sort of general budgetary crunches, um, one is that public education has an egalitarian and democratic side to it, which again Elizabeth has been emphasizing, I think, totally correctly and very importantly. It also has a totally competitive, individualistic, zero-sum side to it. If my kid gets into her, you know, there are something like ten times as many applicants for a slot at Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Stanford or University of Michigan or University of California or as there are slots available for those kids. If my kid gets in, your kid doesn't. Conversely, if your kid gets in, my kid doesn't. Um, and that's a, a, as important a threat in public education. So I think you have a competitive edge in which people are quite willing to spend money on their own children's schooling and not very interested in spending a whole lot of money on other children's schooling in other districts or other states or other communities. The second general political point is that overall, demographically, the number of parents 
with school-age children as a share of the voting population has been declining. So if I'm a state legislator, I get a lot of suburban parents who really, really, really want their schools to be well-funded, who are capable, who have, the, who have the money to fund them to some degree themselves, and who either are sort of indifferent to or maybe even slightly hostile to the idea of funding other school districts equally well. Um, and those parents vote. So I pay attention to them. If I'm a state legislator from an urban district, first of all, a reasonable share of, my, of the children in my district have parents who are not voters because they're immigrants, <coughs> either documented but not voting or undocumented, or we know that in urban communities, uh, for reasons having to do with poverty and a whole bunch of other things, voters, there, there are fewer voters, proportionally fewer voters. So I think there's a political as well as budgetary as well as kind of uh, social dynamic to why schools get funded either in general or in particular districts a lot more than others. It's not a conspiracy, but it may have some of the same effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, that's a longer answer than I intended, but I think schooling is a, is a really important political phenomenon for the reasons, again, that Elizabeth is talking about in terms of what it can do for us politically, but it's also a really important political phenomenon in the sense that we see an awful lot of politics in schooling in a way that we would like not to be there, and we tend to want to think of schools as being sort of above or beside politics, but boy, they aren't. They yep. just aren't. Okay. But, uh, remind me of your question again. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I think you kind of got to it. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, in the conversation here, I think we're sort of teasing out that there's a difference between a an, an well-educated voter, someone who has a high level of educational attainment, versus a well-informed voter, that there's a relationship between the two, but they're not exactly the same. Right. And we've talked quite a bit about um, you know, public education and, and educating the citizenry. But let's turn back for a minute to the informed voter. And I think as we see some of the campaign ads coming out now, it's hard to believe when we listen to this stuff that people are really getting well-informed from that material. But, Elizabeth, you've kind of said that it doesn't may not matter that much if it's factually accurate. It's signaling to people important values, which may be more a more honest indicator of where they want, want to place their vote than the facts actually would be. Did I oversimplify Well, at, uh, as, a, as, you know, as, as the president of an organization that, that has, is totally and completely fact-based, <laughs> <laughs> believes in facts, and believes in presenting various sides of a point of view and having a conversation um, about arriving at consensus positions on how we how we solve the the, the, the problems that the issues in front of us present. Um, I am very very disturbed at the um, at, at how fact challenged an awful lot of the of the media or the campaign advertising not only it has been in this particular election but has been for many 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 years uh and that is one of the re- one of the reasons why the league becomes so active uh during an election season and tries to present as many opportunities as as possible for voters to be able to break away from that advertising and actually hear from the candidates themselves that's why we think the debates are so important uh, and to also to be able to hear um, 
to, to find facts on issues, just as, as I, you know, as I mentioned, as, as the League of Women Voters of Maine is doing on referendum issues, leagues all, of, all across the country are looking at ballot issues and trying to make sure the voters understand what is motivating these things, what, is, what are the facts behind them. So um, while I'm sure these, you know, the competing messages may have value, uh, I would be, I would be, I, I would be remiss in not saying that I really wish that that there was there was more factual there was more factual information and um, and very grateful that around the country we are seeing uh, a new birth of fact checking in the media and we really are are pleased to see the fact checking that has been going on in the newspapers and in and on television. Um, on television stations and the efforts made to really analyze the claims that are being made by the various by the various parties because it's completely impossible to engage your critical thinking skills uh, if what you're being given is not isn't factual or is incomplete. So um, yeah, I think there may be value in 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 watching the two the two arguments, but. Nevertheless, we believe voters, you know, I think voters very badly need facts. Voters want facts. And so, you know, when I say that voters have lots of opportunities, uh, they should, they have a lot of opportunities, I hope, outside of what they're seeing on television. And that's not the only thing that they're basing their decision on. What about facts versus um, values, Jennifer? I've seen some research, too, that seems to indicate that, that blatantly negative campaign advertisements don't really change people's minds. All they do is make people want to stay home. Um, yeah. Where, um, where does the well, fact... I, a Go ahead. couple things here. Uh, one is I'm actually working on a project on exactly the question of fact, factual knowledge in politics. Uh, so this is right up my alley, so I, I will try to be brief here. Um, wh- one thing I've done is very, I, I wouldn't even call these interviews because they've been much more sort of informal chats, but conversation with a few elected officials whom I sort of happen to run into in one, the course of one thing or another. This doesn't really count as research. It's really anecdotes. But I've asked them, so, you know, how much effort do you make and when do you try really hard to convey correct factual information to your constituents as opposed to values or mobilization to get out the vote or emotional appeals or something else? Uh, and the answer is not very much. What they say is, well, after the election, not before the election, or, well, when I'm sure of winning the election, or occasionally if I've taken a vote in office that I know is going to be highly controversial, I need to explain it to some of my constituents. But mostly they don't, if you actually get them after a drink or two in a casual conversation, they'll say that facts aren't really what they're trafficking in. Now, that's, of course, very worrisome, exactly, for, again, the reasons Elizabeth is talking about. I think Having said that, the other point I would make on that side of the story is what you were talking about before that I was describing in terms of motivated reasoning. People hear and absorb, quote, factual information that accords with what they already believe or what they want to believe, and they discount both the information and the speaker who opposes their own starting deep premises. Yes, but having said that, there's also a fair amount of evidence that what I just described only goes so far. That is, you know, as one scholar puts it, facts matter. You know, if the economy is in a depression, people know that they're out of a job or their next-door neighbor's out of a job or something like that. Um, 
if, you know, if there's enough global warming and we lose enough of the Alaskan tundra, sooner or later people are going to know that however it's caused and whatever the consequences ought to be. So at some point, factual information does actually come to bear on political decision-making, often even among the best informed and the people who already have strong views, because they're the people who are politically engaged. The only other thing I would say sort of on the positive and the optimistic side is that, for example, Gallup Poll runs a long series of questions uh, over many elections asking about candidate characteristics. Uh, And one of the questions they ask is, you know, is this candidate honest and trustworthy or not? And then they ask the same question about the opposing candidate. And those numbers vary in ways that make sense. So that, you know, if candidates are being caught out by the media for an unusually important or unusually false piece of information, you can actually look at the poll data and the sort of the trustworthy, honest numbers go down for that candidate. And candidates themselves will say, if I go too low on that dimension, I'm, I'm cooked. Hmm. So there's a little bit, I, I, I don't know how much, and the evidence is complicated and scholars are mixed and blah, 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 all those caveats, but there's some evidence that says there is to some degree a kind of an internal check partly because the citizenry has paid some attention to at least a broad notion of honesty and trustworthiness, even if they can't precisely identify what the person lied about. And candidates have some sense that if they go too low on that dimension, they're in trouble. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this morning are Professor Jennifer Hochschild, the Henry Labar Jane Professor of Government at Harvard University, and Elizabeth McNamara, the 18th President of the League of Women Voters of the United States. We were just talking a little bit about facts versus values in helping voters make up their minds about which way to vote. And um, it was interesting, as you were talking, Jennifer, I was thinking that the people who are really, or the, not the people, but the entities that are doing the public service here, the fact checkers, the callers out, um, the, the media, I mean, none of these are in the public sector. None of these are government agencies. Right. Most of these are acting on their own volition without any regulatory framework whatsoever. Um, so, I mean, is that what we depend upon here is... Well-intentioned volunteers and... Yeah, basically. I mean, you know, again, I'm a political scientist, so I look at the world in terms of politics. But but the the idea of having a kind of a neutral civil service or a neutral regulatory agency or a a public agency that could actually function as the kind of fact-checker you're describing, maybe the British civil service... That the conventional stereotype of the British civil service is that it's absolutely neutral between administrations, but I'm not sure anybody really believes that. And in any case, the United States just doesn't have that tradition. Yeah. You know, to the victor go the spoils, right? And we've tried to compensate, we've tried to overcome that with a civil service and with, you know, uh, tests and licensing and promotion steps and you know, there's a series of efforts within the government to try to control the victor goes to spoils kind of metaphor. But 
It's very hard to imagine a regulatory agency in in our country that everybody would trust equally. Performing that way. And Elizabeth... Performing that well. Now, we tried it. The Congressional Budget Office is the closest, probably, that we come to that. And they, or the Census Bureau, and both of those agencies, people in them take very seriously the idea that they are neutral economists on the one hand, demographers on the other. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's not how they're treated in the in the political arena, right? Right. Well, and I do think I'd also like to to point out though that, that you know there's a difference between fact checking, which we are right now, as you say, relying a lot on um, private private entities to do, and generating facts. Uh, and I think that there is a lot of I think the government does collect a lot at all levels of government collects a lot of um, neutral data. Mm-hmm. It's a question of it's a question of who accesses you know how do you access that data how do you find it what do you do with it once you once you've got it how does it relate to the particular issue or the particular claim that is being made by a candidate and so I mean I, I do think that the government that that public data serves a, an important function uh, along along those lines but in terms of but I agree with Jennifer that in terms of, in our particular system in terms of you know well who we're going to trust to interpret that data analyze a particular claim uh, in this particular election I think we're, we're, we're looking at the private organizations like flagcheck dot uh, org out of the out of the Annenberg Foundation at the or the Annenberg Center at um, the University of Pennsylvania, and we're looking at the the uh, political fact checkers in the various newspapers around the country and on television to and they and and bless them they're doing a great job. Yeah. Um, where they exist, they are you know they will give you the facts. They can't do everything as completely as perhaps some of us who are real junkies would like. But there are those resources out there for for voters, and voters really need to, and they're not, and they're pretty accessible. I heard somebody being interviewed the other day, and they were talking about um, the financial sector and baseball and making the analogy that the higher the stakes are, the more the temptation is to cheat. And um, I think about that sometimes when I think about the parties and the candidates, too, that the higher the stakes are, the stronger the te- temptation is to put out negative or misleading or outright false information, you know, say anything yeah. to win type of stuff. The, 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 there's always, you know, for every cliche, there's an equal and opposite cliche, right? I mm-hmm. mean, the one about universities is that the politics in universities are so vicious because the stakes are so low. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I, don't, I think I agree probably more with yours, but I couldn't resist, sorry. That's all right, but I was going to... Before I turn, because I want my last question to be to both of you, to give us the resources, the tools, name the sites and the organizations. But uh, before I ask that question, I just want to say, is there anything that we as citizens can do or members of parties or supporters of candidates can do to try to hold our um, parties and our candidates to a higher standard? Well, I think, I mean, what, what I think is important, and again, this kind of is a theme that's been running through both of our comments, um, to engage with people we disagree with. I mean, I, you know, I, I consider myself more pretty much on the left, again, not unusual for an academic, but I make a point of reading a reasonable number, not a huge number, but a reasonable number of sort of, you know, conservative journalists or uh, book reviews or magazines or whatever. And mostly I disagree with what they say, and probably I mostly reinforce what I think already. But, but every so once in a while, 
uh, huh, ooh, good point. Mm-hmm. You know, and if I do that one out of even 50 times, you know, 50 paragraphs that I read where I disagree with 49 of them, one of them sticks. What do you think, so, Elizabeth? You know, my, and my, my, my answer to that is a, is a lot, is somewhat simpler. Uh, and that is that the best, I, I, be, I firmly believe that the best way we can demonstrate to our, our, to our leaders, uh, to, um, to the parties, regardless of which party we, we feel more in tune with, uh, the best way we can show them that we're still, you know, that, that the voter is still the boss, the voter is still in control, is to turn out and vote. Uh, whether you know, if, even if the, even if you're turned off by the negative advertising, even if you don't have a tremendous amount of time to become completely conversant with uh, with every issue uh, and all the nuances of the issues, nevertheless, uh, turning out and voting in great numbers is the best way that I have ever seen in the history of our of our democracy uh, to get the attention. Of elected of elected officials, if we are turning out and we are voting regularly, uh, yeah, I read one league leader that uh, from the very very early days, and this is so dear to my heart that the success of democracy does not depend on a few you know a few persons doing great things, but on many persons doing small things faithfully. Uh, the more of us that turn out and vote uh, in November, the harder it is for those voters to be to be ignored. Well, and it's a good point if the whole purpose of negative advertising is to make a certain segment of the voting population stay home. The best revenge mm-hmm. is to get out there. Well, Absolutely. So Absolutely. We're, we're coming down to the kind of right out of time point here. And before um, we wrap up, I want, do want to give you both a chance to tell our listeners where they can go um, online or elsewhere to get the facts and to find some um, real solid information. We mentioned um, factcheck.org and flackcheck.org. I believe the Pew Center has a similar fact-checking yep. operation, and I think Politico might have one, too. Mm-hmm. Are there others that you would like to put before our listeners this morning? There's two that I would mention. Um, one is, again, for people who are not just politics junkies, but even political science junkies, there's a blog called Monkey Cage, or themonkeycage.org. Um, uh, the, the origins is, well, I, I'll spare you, but in any case, um, and it's a, well, I think it's a pretty accessible blog by a bunch of political scientists who pay a lot of attention to elections and to candidate speeches, and they, you know, they, they it's, it's a little bit academic, it's a little wonky, but they make a serious effort to engage with the issues and in a way that's accessible. Lots of graphs, lots of sort of anecdotal stuff. So it's, a, it's very useful. It's, you know, at least to kind of drop in and out of. The other one that I would mention is 538.com, um, which is Nate Silver, who's a former baseball statistics whiz and has turned his extraordinary talents to politics statistics whizzing. Um, and he, again, pays a lot of attention to kind of uh, the closest thing that there is to sort of neutral facts in polls or in demography or in tax, you know, changes in tax participation. So, um, and it's 
pretty accessible blog. It's also a little wonky. But, but those two, I think, in addition to the ones that Elizabeth's already mentioned, you've already mentioned, uh, give a lot of information. What about you, Elizabeth? Anything else you want to put on the table here? Well, the, you know, first and foremost, if we are going to um, flood the polling, you know, flood the polling booths on election day with an awful lot of voters, uh, voters need to know, you know, what their what the laws are in their state. They need to know their registration deadlines, which are coming right up here in yep. the next few weeks. Uh, in most parts of the country, I know not in not in Maine, fortunately, um, thanks to the people's veto. But the um, but vote411.org is the league's one-stop shopping for getting the information that you need so that you know where to go vote on election day. Um, certain basic candidate information will be up on that site uh, in the next few weeks. And also, you know, what the election laws are, the early voting laws, the absentee voting laws in your state. If you don't know the rules, then you can't participate. And so the most important thing is to understand the rules. Uh, those are usually pretty simple, so I would recommend vote411.org. Uh, on all voting matters, and I think we've mentioned uh, a lot of the a lot of the online sites, but you know, also it, just a broad to pay attention to local newspapers, uh, local TV, and you know, watch a variety of of Sunday morning talk shows uh, before uh, mainstream ones before the election. You know, just just don't limit yourself to a single source of news. Talk to people. Show up for a candidate debate. Uh, turn out. Watch the debates the presidential debates. Those are all really good sources of information that don't take a lot of time um, and can broadly help a, a voter get informed and feel more comfortable going out and voting. Thank you both so much. We are running out of time this morning. I want to say one more time thank you to our guests, Professor Jennifer Hawkschild, the Henry Labar Jane Professor of Government at Harvard University, and Elizabeth McNamara, the 18th President of the League of Women Voters of the United States. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Joel Mann, our engineer here at WERU. Thank you to our listeners. If you have a suggestion for a topic or guests on a future Democracy Forum or to join the League of Women Voters, email us at lwvme.org or visit us at lwvme.org or call the league at 6220256 thank you so much we'll see you here next month to redeem the work of